Good evening. Welcome to our service of ordination and installation. My name is Ben Ratliff. I'm one of the ministers here. And I wouldn't normally tell you that except that my name's not Tim Starnes, like it says in the bulletin. We're glad you're here to celebrate with us and to praise the Lord. Um, we are not here primarily to think about men, even though it is a focus of our time. We are here to praise the God who's called these men and who has called all of us to himself in the Lord Jesus. Our call to worship tonight comes from Psalm 118, verses 23 and 24, and then 28 and 29. This is the word of God as we enter into the Lord's worship. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Let's stand and sing praise to our God. Turn to number 76 and we'll sing Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. O Lord, our God, you are a great God, the great king above all gods. In your hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are yours also. The sea is yours, for you made it, and your hands formed the dry land. Father, this evening we come for a particular purpose, but would you let us not forget our primary purpose? We come with our minds upon a church 
and a group of men, but would you let us not forget our God? Holy Spirit, help us that we may come, worship, and bow down. Would you incline our hearts that we may kneel before you, our Lord and our Maker? For you are our God, and we are the people of your pasture, the sheep of your hand. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. All praise belongs to you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Come and be blessed, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Our Old Testament reading tonight comes from Exodus 18. The doctrine of Presbyterianism is not a New Testament invention. Um, As Moses led the people out of Israel, he wound up uh, in the wilderness with them. His father-in-law Jethro comes. This is part of what we'll hear in just a moment. Jethro comes and notices that there is much too much ministry for Moses to handle all by himself. And so he gives him advice, and this passage records that account and the advice that Jethro gives and the fact that Moses puts it into practice. So hear God's word from Exodus 18, beginning in verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that they had come upon in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace." So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. 
Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's stand again together and sing number 347, The Church's One Foundation.
may be seated. Glad you are here. Uh, this is a, a big night in the life of uh, several men that come to be ordained and installed as ruling elders and, uh, and deacons. It's not only a big night uh, in the life of those men, but it's a big night in the life of our church. We have faithfully and diligently prayed that men would be raised up, especially from uh, another generation. Somebody said that most of us are old in the teeth. And uh, so God has raised these men up, and we believe that who God calls, He equips. These men have been taught. Uh, they have been examined by the session. They, standed, they stood before the congregation elected overwhelmingly, uh, by 90% all of them, basically. And the reason we're excited is because we believe God has gifted these men and the men that lead us to lead us into a place where we can maintain our unity and attain our maturity as people of God. And that's what the passage is about that we read tonight. Ephesians chapter 4 beginning with verse 1. Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when He ascended on high, He took many captives, and He gave gifts to His people. What does He mean, He ascended? except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach a unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up in every respect, the mature body, of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined together and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up as each one in love does his work. The reading of God's word. Let's pray. And Father, thank you for the church. Thank you that it is the bride of Christ, that you are sanctifying her that you have gifted her uh, with men, with particular gifts of leadership and service. 
And thank you that those men are a gift to the church so that we might attain uh, the maturity that you have for us. Use this passage to encourage your people and bless us, we pray, as we hear it preached in the name of Christ. Amen. I want to talk a little bit about divinity. I have a master of divinity, but it doesn't work when you're making divinity. Sarah came into the den during the Christmas holidays and said, Would you like to help me make some divinity? I had forgotten what it would take to make divinity. The barometric pressure has to be just right. Uh, the, the moisture in the air has to be just at a certain level. The moon has to be lined up with the stars. And so what you do, you take this sugar and Cairo and you boil it. Now, if you don't boil it enough, the candy won't harden. And if you boil it too much, it will burn and it won't look good. And what you do, once you do that, you have over here, you have egg whites that you have beaten together, you know, whipped up fluffy and like that. I can know what I'm talking about. But anyway, then you take that boiling liquid and you pour it in there while I'm stirring it with a mixer. And you stir it until the motor starts groaning. Until it's about the consistency of concrete. Stir in some pecans. And you try, try to make the mixture go. And Sarah burned one up last year, but not saying you know it's her fault. But then, So when the thing is groaning and before it starts smoking, we turn it off. And now you have to stir it. It says until it loses its shiny texture. It should say three or four hours stirring. So we stirred and stirred, and I'd say, is it still shiny? <laughs> is it still shiny like a kid at Christmas? But anyway, we must have done something wrong because it was kind of sticky. But it was good. It was worth the effort. And Lanny's got an easy recipe, I understand. But it was good. The Bible says that Christian unity is good. It's good for brothers and sisters to dwell in unity together. That's Psalm 133. It's worth the effort. And it takes effort. It takes effort to maintain the unity of the church in the bond of peace. It takes effort to see the church grow up and do every part does its work equally well. And as you maintain unity and attain that maturity, it's good. It's interesting that the Bible says maintain unity. It doesn't say obtain unity. It says maintain unity. And the reason it says maintain unity is because there already is a unity that exists. There is only one God and Father there's only one Spirit and one baptism, one God and Father of us all, in all and through all. There is a oneness exists. And when you become a Christian and you're by faith, you're in Christ, then you're together with everybody that is in Christ. And we are one, all who truly believe, truly believe the Lord Jesus Christ, are the Holy Catholic Church, little c. And we're also the local church, little c. 
And it's hard to maintain unity on the large scale or on the small scale. Although that unity, you know, exists. John R.W. Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, says this is the best way to understand it. Say you have a family, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, and they have three boys, Tom, Dick, and Harry. And he says, Mr. and Mrs. Jones will get to being uh, at odds with one another, and they separate. And uh, they're not divorced, but they're not living together, and so, but they, she keeps his last name. And Tom, Dick, and Harry graduate and move off, and they've chosen sides and been hurt by the separation, so they never talk anymore. In essence, they're still one family, aren't they? They're still mom and dad, and they're brothers. But there's no expression of that. There's no maintaining it so that they're speaking to one another, where they, they create a picture of the unity that exists by birth. And that's what this passage is saying. There's a unity that is ours in Christ in this church. But we have to maintain it or it will split up and, and go its separate ways. And so what Paul does in this letter, in Ephesians 1 through 3, he gives us all the theology. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he gives us all the, the practical. He gives us the, the truth, the theology, and over here, the how to do it. He gives us the indicatives, the facts of the Christian life, that you're chosen before the foundation of the world. You're called, you're, you're, you're brought near, you're at peace with God. He gives all of those tremendous indicatives. These are facts of the Christian life. And in 4, 5, and 6, he gives all these imperatives. Here's what you do. Here's how you live in a church. Here's how you live in a family. Here's how you do warfare in the world. And so what he calls us to do, in essence, and in summary, he says, to walk worthy of the calling by which you've been called. That's kind of how you can translate Walk worthy. The NIV says live the life that captures it, but that's not a good translation. The idea there is to walk, and as you walk, you know, step by step and hour by hour and day by day, that's how you live. And so the NIV took the dynamic equivalent. But it's to walk step by step in this unity. And how do you do it? You do it in a worthy manner. And what does that mean? I think it means that we walk humbly, we serve graciously, and we speak lovingly. We walk humbly. Humility wasn't a very impressive virtue in the early church, because in the Roman world, in the Hellenistic culture, humility was never spoken of in a positive way. It was a servile you know, a, a lowly estate, a, a slave even. And so nobody would call themselves and pride themselves or aim at humility. That was something that they would, that we would probably say humiliation. It's a whole different concept. But when Jesus came, he changed everything. He changed lives and he changed the vocabulary. It says that Jesus, although he existed as a form of a God, did not think equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became obedient. He humbled himself and became obedient to, to, 
to death, even death on the cross. He humbled Himself. He gave up His position and He took on a lower position to serve and to save, to live and to die. And it's interesting in that great big section about Jesus' humiliation and His becoming human and His being a servant and dying, that whole thing is probably a creed or a hymn. And right before that, Paul uses it as an encouragement towards humility. He says, Now each one of you have the mind of you that's in Christ Jesus. And think of others as more important than yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's just not thinking about yourself. It's not putting yourself... Uh, First, it's not thinking only about me. The party's not about me. Life's not about me. And I love what C.S. Lewis says about humility. He says, now listen to how he starts it off. Do not imagine that you have ever met a really humble man. He said, you probably never met a really humble man. He will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will be sort of greasy, swarmy person who's always telling you, of course, that he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about is that he is, probably all you'll think about if you met a truly humble person is that he seemed cheerful, an intelligent chap who took great interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it's because you felt a little envious of anyone who seemed to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. What C.S. Lewis is saying, a humble person is not going to be telling you how bad he is or how he doesn't have any gifts or abilities or anything. He's going to be asking about you. He's going to be talking about what's going on in your life. He cares about your life. It's easy to carry a conversation when you ask people to talk about themselves. It's humble, but it's the way to get a conversation going. But humility also has a cousin in this list. It's called patience. It says be patient with one another and long-suffering. And that means that Christians are hard to live with. They're, they're hard to deal with. You know, if you're going to be patient with somebody, it means there's some reason why you have to be patient. You know, they, they sing off-key. They talk too loud. They violate your space. They're so opinionated. Their breath smells. Their clothes are old. Their shoes squeak. And so we have this reason that we just, you know, that we just have a hard time dealing with some people. Listen to Brian Habig, and he said, he made these two statements. He said, when a lady comes to me and says, you know, I know I'm supposed to submit to my husband, but, you know, he doesn't listen to me. He doesn't express his feelings. He doesn't talk very much. He's interested in things I'm not interested in. Brian Habig said, okay, what I just heard you say is, I have a husband. 
the rest of us understood, isn't it? And he says, people come in and say, you know, I'm in a church, but the pastor's not very good, and the Sunday school class is kind of dominated by somebody, and the person that sits behind me sings too loud, and they can't sing, and the kids in front of me are squirming. And he says, what I hear you say is, I'm in a church. I'm in a church where we have to be patient with one another, long-suffering with one another. On Wednesday night, this past Wednesday night, we looked at screw tape letters. C.S. Lewis wrote this from the devil's perspective. And what he is trying to do is he's trying to tell his cohort or his assistant how to get into the life of this new convert. And I think it's in the second chapter. He says, make him think the church is ridiculous. And I'm just going to paraphrase what he says. He says... All he sees is the greasy face of the butcher that he deals with every Monday. Or he sees so-and-so with a foolish hat. And he sees so-and-so with a double chin. And he comes to the conclusion, help him come to the conclusion that Christianity and church is just as ridiculous as those people are. But Christianity and church is important because you've never met a mere mortal that everybody is made in the image of God and people that are Christians are redeemed in the, by the blood of the Lamb. They are important. And we are to be humble and patient and long-suffering with them if we're going to have unity and attain maturity. Then we have to serve graciously. And verse 8 says that Jesus or God gave us grace. Uh, that's verse 7. And it says He gave us a gift. And the same Greek word is kind of... There, the same root word is there. Uh, the grace that God gives us in this context is the gift God gives us. They're kind of synonymous. And so the image is that God has been gracious to you and to me by giving us a gift. And He's been gracious to the church by giving us gifted people. But we have to serve graciously. The image is all this ascending and descending. It's talking about Jesus' incarnation is when He descended. And when he ascended into the higher places, when he, when he left the disciples, you know, in Acts chapter 1, and he ascended into heaven. But as he ascended, he ascended like a conquering king. And a conquering king in those days would come into the city, and they'd be throwing out the loot that they, they'd sharing the loot with the people. And so the images of a conquering warrior going into the royal city, and he's throwing out gifts. But they're not at random. He gives these gifts as He chooses to His people. And everybody has a gift. That's what it says in verse 7. He gives this grace to everybody. And people say, what's my gift? What's my gift? I don't have a gift. And I'm going, it's the easiest thing in the world to find out your gift. You're going, really? What you have to do is you have to have, find a place to serve. You have to find a place to make others more like Christ. Make the church more united and more mature and more what it ought to be. You find a need that you can meet and you meet it. And that need might be great or small, but you find your place, you stick your hole in the finger in the hole in the dike. And every gift is important. Some of you know Brian Chapel. He taught 
uh, preaching at Covenant Theological Seminary. Then he became the president, and uh, now he's a stated clerk of the General Assembly. He's the author of several books. And he talked about a person who had a gift uh, that, that really affected his life was his third grade Sunday school teacher. He said he was a, a male Sunday school teacher, which was unusual in those days. And he said the thing about this guy was that when I got to the fourth grade, he was still interested in me. When I got to junior high, he was still interested in me. And when I got to high school, he was still interested in me. And when I went to college, he wrote me a couple of letters. And he said, when I became the president of Covenant Seminary, I got a letter from this man, and he said he said he'd been praying for him to find God's spot for him all of these years. And Brian Chapel says, I can say with pure honesty that I am probably where I am because of the prayers of men and women like that. That didn't despise the small place but serve where there was a need. D.L. Moody said, If I had to live my life all over again, I would invest it in the raising of godly children. Why would Moody say that? Because Moody was in a Sunday school class taught by Kimball. Kimball came down to the store where Moody was working and shared the gospel with him. Moody became a believer as a teenager. He became an evangelist. And his work impacted Billy Graham. But it all started with a Sunday school teacher. Billy Graham was invited to go to a university to speak. And this was early in his career. And he gave a lecture on church history. And the person who went with him says, God has called you to be evangelist. Don't despise that gift ever again. What was he telling him? was an evangelist, but he tried to be a church historian. He was gifted to be an evangelist. You, you want to serve? Lynn uh, Buford went visiting with me the other day, and I said the same thing, and I told him I said the same thing when Lawrence and I left the nursing home or assisted living the last time. I said, I don't, I don't think people understand how much joy it is in visiting people. I don't think I've ever walked to my car and I wasn't, there wasn't a sense of, of divine satisfaction about doing something that you thought was, had value. Got a text the next day. It's interesting how things work. And I got a text that asked, did I know of anybody that could take her mom to the beauty shop? That's silly, but it's pretty important to go to the beauty shop. Your gifts, God's given you one. As you use them, the church is blessed, the church is united, the church is, is maturing as you use the gifts. And if you don't use them, we, we're at a detriment. And then we are to speak lovingly. Walk humbly, serve graciously, and speak lovingly. Speak the truth in love. Probably one of my favorite verses, one that I try to live by, one that I have trouble living by because a lot of times I speak lovingly but not the truth, meaning I hate to say the hard things to people. And some of you do just the opposite. You love telling the truth, you just don't have much love behind it. I told one of our officers years ago, I said, you're like a dentist without anesthesia, man. 
I said, you're, you're, you're pretty painful when you tell people. And he said, well, you don't tell people very much. And I'm going, okay, we need each other. You know, but the truth told in love, it doesn't mean that you have the right to straighten everybody out. But the context means that we're going to live in a world where our kids and our vulnerable people and our, and our congregation is going to be exposed to all kinds of things. Did you hear what it said? We were, we're infants tossed to and fro by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and cunning craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. In other words, there are all kinds of stuff out there. But you come to the church and you have to have somebody to say, okay, that stuff's not true. That baby is alive in the womb. No, your teachers can't control your sexual preferences. No, there are not many ways to God. Yes, God can forgive all your sins. No, you're not a worthless, useless person. No, you're not beyond saving. You're speaking the truth into the lies of the culture out there. And when you do that, you build up the church and you make it mature. And that's why we're so excited tonight. That's a big calling, but we believe that God gives gifts so that we can maintain unity and attain maturity. Let me read one quote from Stott. He says this, The more we share Paul's perspective, the deeper will be our discontent with the ecclesiastical status quo. Some of us are too conservative, too complacent, too ready to acquiesce in the present situation and to resist any change. Others are too radical, wanting to dispense with the institution altogether. Instead, we need to grasp more clearly the kind of society God wants the church to be. And then we shall not be content either with the things that are or with partial solutions, but rather we will pray and work for the church's total renewal, its unity, and its maturity. May God help us do that. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the church. Thank you for the men and the women that you have gifted in this church. May we serve you graciously, faithfully, that we might be united and mature people. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You got this. You guys ready? Your fingers tingling? Yeah. We are here to ordain and install seven men as officers in our church. Uh, three of these men will be ordained to the office of ruling elder. They are David Arant, Matthew Mullins, and Jacob Taylor. Ruling elders are men whom the Lord has called to oversee the flock of God. An elder is to be competent in learning blameless in life, sound in faith, and apt to teach. Our BCO says it belongs to elders to watch diligently over the flock committed to their charge that no corruption of doctrine or morals enter therein. As Tim's already reflected, David and Matthew and Jacob have been nominated and elected by you, the congregation, and they've been trained and examined by us to session, and they display in their lives the qualities of an elder. And they have professed a, a personal calling to serve, and so uh, we will be glad 
uh, to ordain them tonight. The other four of these men, rather the, the, other, the other four of the seven in total, will be ordained to the office of deacon. These are Jonathan Fortner, Trent Jennings, Wesley Radishoni, and Aaron Tan, who I didn't, there he is, okay, just making sure. Deacons are men whom the Lord has called to serve the church. The BCO calls the, the office of deacon and offices of, of sympathy and service after the example of the Lord Jesus. It is their duty to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church and faithfully distribute the gifts among the objects to which they are contributed. There's a beautiful line in our BCO that says, Deacons should be men of spiritual character, honest repute, exemplary lives, brotherly spirit, warm sympathies, and sound judgment. Jonathan, Wesley, Trent, and Aaron have been nominated and elected by you, the congregation, and they've been trained by us. The session found suitable for this office. They display the qualities of a deacon in their lives, and they feel the call to serve in this capacity. The, the three components of a call to ministry are a, an, an inward call, you feel yourself, um, the the agreement of a church that calls you to serve in that capacity, and then the approval of the church court that has jurisdiction. So these men have been called by God. That's, that's their inward call. They've been elected by the congregation and have been approved by the session. And so it is necessary that we ordain them to these offices. Ordination is not a small thing. That's the technical word in the BCO, by the way. Not a small thing. It's a big deal. It is the authoritative admission of someone duly called to an office in the church. You men will make promises tonight that are lifetime promises. They're not above your vows to your wife. But they are just as important. Just as significant. And this whole service for all of us is really quite a treat. You know, the Lord Jesus is always ruling his church through his officers. Um, but tonight we get to see the Lord Jesus come and um, set these men apart to their particular calling. We get to see the Lord rule his church as we watch these men ordained to their called offices. You see a little bit of an outline there of what's about to happen. Tim's going to ask these men some questions. Hopefully they'll say yes to all of them. I would encourage you men to say yes to all of these questions. After which the elders will lay hands upon them. Some of this is just to remind the men what they're doing. We'll lay hands on while Jimmy comes and prays. And then we'll give them the right hand of fellowship, welcoming them to the office. At that point, I'll give an exhortation to the officers. And then Ted will come and give an exhortation to the congregation. So that's where we're headed. Let's get going. I call the men forward, Matthew, Jacob, David as the elders, Aaron, Trent and Wesley, and Jonathan as deacons to come forward, stand over here. Can you stand by elders and stand by deacons as groups? There you go. Makes me nervous when you can't line up. <laughs> so you answer in the affirmative by saying, I do. The office of elder and deacon both take the same questions. 
they both have the same training. They basically all have the same qualifications, except the elders are supposed to be apt to teach, and, and that doesn't mean college level or anything, but apt to teach the faith. The deacons have to believe the faith that they teach. Do you believe the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant Word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught by the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if any time you find yourself out of accord with any fundamentals of this doctrine, you will on your own initiative make known to the session the change which has taken place in your vows since the assumption of your ordination position? Do you? Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of the Presbyterian Church in America in conformity with the general principles of biblical polity? Do you? Do you accept the office of ruling elder or deacon in this church and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and to set a worthy example before the church of which God has made you an officer? Do you? Do you promise submission to your brethren in the Lord? Do you? Do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? Do you? Hearing these men answer in the affirmative, I ask the congregation to raise your hand in the affirmative as I read you your question. Do you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive these brothers as ruling elders and deacons? And do you promise to yield to them all the honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which this office accords according to the Word of God and the Constitution of the church entitles them to? Do you? If you do, please raise your hand. Jimmy, would you come and pray for these guys? Would y'all all kneel? And I'll have all the elders come up as well. All the elders come. And then after Jimmy prays, I'd have all the deacons come and, and, and come up too and give the right hand of fellowship after I pronounce them officers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight in awe that you are the creator of all, you're the Lord of the universe, and that you use broken vessels like us to serve in your church. Lord, we lift up these men tonight, Lord, that you would aid them in using their gifts, Lord, that you would place a burden upon their hearts to love your church. Lord, that you would give them patience, that you would give them wisdom as they serve. Lord, we pray that you would bind Satan from them and their families to protect them so that their names in this community would still remain strong and good, that others outside of our church would look at them and would see salt and light. So, Father, we pray for these men. We pray that you would use them in a mighty way to further your will and to increase your kingdom. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Stand up, y'all. Let me pronounce you, and then we'll give you the right hand of fellowship. I pronounce and declare that you have been regularly elected, ordained, and installed as ruling elders and deacons in this church 
agreeable to the Word of God according to the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, and that as such you are entitled to all encouragement, honor, and obedience in the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And we give you the right hand of fellowship. I'll ask that you men to sit on the front row while Ben gives you the charge. All of you sit there together. Then after that, Ted will have a word for the congregation. Well, praise the Lord, gentlemen. It's my responsibility and privilege to give you an exhortation while the duties to your offices look uh, very different between the two that we have. The type of man that you are to be is the same for each one of you. Um, our book of church order in chapter 8, you, you reckon this is one of the services every year you hear the most about the BCO? Our book of church order speaks about elders, but the substance of what it says in chapter 8, even though it is about elders, the, the substance of this particular part is suitable for all officers in Christ's church. It says it is our duty to be spiritually fruitful, dignified, and prudent, an example to the flock, and to govern well in the house and kingdom of Christ. It's that first and, and primary phrase I, I want us to give our attention to for just a couple of minutes. Let's see if I can get your names right. I've been working on them. So, Aaron, Jonathan, Trent, Wesley, Jacob, Matthew, and David, I exhort you to be spiritually fruitful be spiritually fruitful in order to give some feet to such a broad exhortation i'm going to give you four imperatives that fall underneath this heading first number one prize the lord above all else prize the lord above all else we all live in a sinful world and each of us remains uh, under the influence of our corruption from our, our original nature and these things will tempt you to desire other idols, um, other things in your life that are not the Lord. Um, I hate to tell you this, but it's true. As, as officers in Christ's church, the devil will take special aim at you. Um, you, will have, um, you will have a target painted on your back. You'll be tempted by pride and by money, by sexual immorality. You'll be tempted by power and by things. Puritan William Jenkins said, to forsake Christ for the world or a lust is to leave a mountain of gold for a heap of dung. You must prize the Lord above all else and cling to Him. Your only defense against falling 
is to prize him above everything else. It's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 73 as he looks around the world and he wonders why the, the, the evil people prosper. He gets towards the end of his psalm and he writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So that's your goal every day, to prize the Lord, to remember that, that apart from Him, you are helpless. Apart from what He has done for you, you are helpless and dead, just like all of us need to remember that we have not saved ourselves, that we have not called ourselves to be God's people, but He, he has come toward us. We need to remember that the world has nothing good to offer us. You need to remember that Jesus is your salvation and your happiness. You need to seek him through the word and through prayer. You need to make the Lord your chief treasure. And in this way, you will stand against sin and Satan. You prize the Lord above all else. Secondly, prioritize your family. Prioritize your family. You'll remember the language from 1 Timothy chapter 3. When he speaks about church officers, Paul writes that he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You know, before you can lead the church, you must lead your family. Before you can lead any of these people, you need to leave, lead, not leave, lead your people. Right, before, before any of you would ever hope to feed the big flock, you have to learn how to feed the little flock. Make time for your wife. Pray for her and nurture her and love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Bring your children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. You know, you aim at their hearts and the behavior comes along. We get that mixed up a lot. You aim at their hearts. Um, you teach them by your prayers and by your example how to love God and how to love his word, and how to love his people. John Flavel says, a man, a man is what he is in his family. Prioritize your family. Thirdly, pursue the flock. You know, in Acts chapter 6, when the first deacons were ordained, and the elders were specifically set apart for their purpose of prayer and the ministry of the word. We understand there in that chapter that the role of officers, both deacons and elders, uh, is, is one that is of benefit to the congregation. We might say that we serve the Lord by serving his people. He's called us to serve his people. And so, to use words that Paul speaks in Acts 20, it is your responsibility to pay careful attention to all the flock. Sometimes there's a misconception that deacons are only supposed to deal with money in the building, and that's not true. Um, there would be men who are concerned with the whole church. This means that all of us who are officers, you men included now, this means you check in on families that you know, and you meet new ones, and you check in on them too. You bend down and you speak to their children. You let them know that you love them. You inquire after their spiritual well-being. You're to kindly... This is maybe more for an elder, but to kindly urge them to attend the worship services and the prayer meetings of the church. You seek after their good. Maybe more of a deacon's issue. If there are needs that are to be met in some way, you see that the needs are met. 
But most important of all, elders and deacons, all of us together, we must pray for the people. We must pray for them. We, we must pray, as what, what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, we pray that, that they would know Christ and the power of his resurrection and that they may share in his sufferings. You pursue the flock. And lastly, fourthly, we, pri- we, we prize the Lord, we prioritize our families, we pursue the flock, but in all of this, we patiently wait on God. We patiently wait on God. All, all the prayers that you will make for, for yourself, for your own heart and your own life, all the prayers you will make for your families, all the prayers that you will make for this congregation, what can you do to move those things along? Nothing. We are impotent. We must wait on God. This is a constant theme throughout the psalm. Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait for the Lord. Isn't it interesting that when this command, he says, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The reason he says that we have to be strong is because patience is one of the most difficult things you'll ever do as an officer in the church. Because you want everything to be better right now. And you want the people to act this way right now. No offense. I'm not not getting on to anybody. But the Lord calls us to wait and to be patient for his time. The idea of waiting, um, it reminds us that God is the one that makes our work fruitful. I'm charging you to spiritual fruitfulness, but you must remember that you wait on God for that fruitfulness to come about. So you, you can't seek Him. If we think about prizing the Lord, you can't seek Him on your own. You only love Him because He first loved you. You only can move toward Him because He has made you alive and able to move toward Him. All of your life is a response to God. All of our life is a, is a waiting upon Him. We wait for the Lord. But neither can you do any good to your family in your own strength. Your wife and your children will benefit from your leadership, but only so far as the Lord ministers to them by His Spirit. Only so far as He makes what you are doing effective. Um, you, you must obey and pray and wait. And so also in the church, you're catching on probably, that, that, that your care of God's people in whatever sphere of your labor, whether elder or deacon, your care is only effective because God makes it effective. You can't do anything. You can't do anything because God does everything. You obey and you pray. And maybe at this point, since we're getting to the end, I'll say we obey and we pray and then we wait. And we, we expectantly hope that God will do what he said he will do. And he will. He will do amazing things through your ministry. And you better never take credit for a moment of it, okay? Never. God is effective, not you. It is a man who's given up on himself that God uses. You died to self when God drew you to Christ. May the Lord grant you that same death in your service to this church. Amen. Brother, why don't you come and exhort the rest of us? Well, we're an hour into this, and I realize that uh, my words and uh, the final hymn and the benediction is all that stands between us and what I'm sure will be some wonderful fellowship time 
and some good food, but I have been charged with charging you, the congregation, and how to respond to these new uh, ruling elders and deacons. And so I take my inspiration from the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> Paul, as you know, planted many churches, and as a result, he uh, mentored many, many men, many ruling elders, and many leaders of the church. And so, thankfully, due to God's providence and the writing of, of Paul in the New Testament, we have good examples of the church and church leadership and what it means to be the church. And I note in particular in the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians that Paul, who planted that church, and realized he, he had only a brief time to plant it. He had about a few months to plant that church before he was essentially run out of town by the Jewish leaders who were jealous of what he was doing. And so he writes the Thessalonians from uh, probably the city of Corinth. And he's very aware that Christ might come at any moment. We see at the end of the fourth chapter and the beginning of the fifth chapter that he's talking about the day of the Lord. And he writes the Thessalonians that when the Lord returns, first the dead in Christ will rise and join him in the sky, and then those who are alive in Christ will join him as well. Paul was expecting Christ to return at any moment. He wrote that letter in A.D. 50. That's 1,972 years ago, and Christ has yet to return. He has his own reasons for tarrying. Now, he could return before the end of this, this uh, worship service tonight, or he could w return and wait another 1,900 or so years. We don't know. That's in his sovereign control. But he hasn't left us alone. He's given us his Holy Spirit, and he's given us the church, his body, the body of Christ. And as part of that, he's given us ruling elders and deacons to lead us, to guide us, to pray for us, to care for us, to love us and to nurture us. And as we live in this time that is often called, referred to as the now and the not yet, that period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, we are charged to live as befits believers. Tim talked about Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, also written by Paul, a great outline for how to live as the church. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 give a list, list upon list, of what we're to do, how we're to relate to each other and to our leaders. And so he hasn't left us alone. He has given us uh, the church and his and given us leaders to lead the church. And Tim asked me, he, he texted me uh, several days ago and asked me would I be willing to uh, charge the congregation. I texted him right back. I said, sure, absolutely. I'll be glad to do that. And then he didn't even respond, and I responded almost immediately and said, and by the way, what, what do you want me to say? What points do you want me to make? And he probably should have texted me back and said, never mind, I'll find somebody else. But 
he didn't. And what he what he texted me back was this. He said, you need to tell them to pray for these men, to encourage these men, to help these men, and to follow these men. And I would add to that what you just raised your hand and promised to do. And I wrote it down out of the Book of Church Order. You promised to yield to these men that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which their office entitles them. So I just want to take those in, in three groups quickly, and I realize you all are just eager for me to sit down and, and get, get the fellowshipping, but encouraging and helping. Now, those of you who bake, you might say, oh, I could bake these men some cookies at their meetings, their session meeting or the diaconate meeting. And let me just suggest if you take that up, uh, white chocolate macadamia nut along with maybe a 50% mix of uh, original Toll House chocolate chip cookies would be outstanding because I know these young men, as loving and caring as they are, will be glad to share with their older, perhaps wiser, and certainly triglyceride-challenged uh, brothers and fathers in Christ. But in all seriousness, well, I am serious about cookies, that's, that's for sure, but 18 months ago, I, along with Clint and Ben, were preparing to go to the General Assembly, the 2021 General Assembly. And if you may recall that leading up to that, the 18 months or so before that, we were hearing weird, strange new things that we hadn't heard, I don't think, at least I hadn't, in, in our denomination. We were learning about a revoice conference. We were learning about side B Christianity and, and a gay Christian. What, what is that? The PCA had existed for nearly 50 years and had come out of a liberal denomination because of its uh, desire to be uh, true to the word of God. And here we were on the, the brink of 50 years of, of us as a denomination and suddenly progressivism and liberalism were rearing their ugly head as it were. We learned that there were there was at least one, maybe more, teaching elder in the denomination who considered himself to be a gay Christian and was it, felt that he was in good standing with the, the denomination. And the session and the presbytery weren't doing any, anything about it. And so we were going to vote for some overtures to change the Book of Church order so that men from then on and even those who had already occupied the office would be held to account that they might stand for what is true in God's word. And I, I share this to say that I had a conversation, here's the encouraging part, I had a conversation with a member of this congregation who shared with me that one of their, a member of their immediate family was gay, and they found out about this several years ago, and it was a difficult situation for them to reconcile, to work through, uh, and it took months and years to work through this issue, and they were perhaps still trying to resolve it in their minds, but the point is this, that person wanted me to know that I should go and I needed to vote for these overtures, and that it was important that our denomination stand for what is true and right 
and orthodox in terms of God's word. And regardless of what the culture would dictate, and regardless of what this person's immediate family member, the, the uh, condition that they found themselves, we needed to be true and faithful to God's word. And that was an encouragement to me because I realized in that moment what a privilege it was to lead and minister to people who understand the word of God, and I know you do. And so I encourage you and exhort you to take advantage of what we call the ordinary means of grace, to pray, pray without ceasing, but study your, study your Bible, continue to improve upon your salvation, continue to become more and more Christ-like by turning to the Word of God and studying what it means to become Christ-like. If you do that, you're going to make my life and the lives of these young new officers much more light and enjoyable. So that's encouraging and helping. Quickly, uh, honor, obey, follow, a lot of these things blend together, but Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in, the lo in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So Paul is here encouraging the church in Thessalonica to respect those who labor among them and to, to uh, respect and honor those who are laboring and working and are, have been put in place over them as these men have been placed over you. They have heeded the call of God. They have been examined and trained. You, by your vote, elected them as officers, and now they have been ordained and installed as officers, and we owe them the respect and honor that their office demands. And then Paul says this also, and this is probably the most important thing. He says in verse 25, brothers, pray for us. We need to pray. We need to pray for ourselves, for our own sanctification, for our families, for our community, for our coworkers. We need to pray for our church. You need to pray for your elders and deacons. You need to pray especially for these new young uh, elders and deacons as well. It's our means of communicating to God, to asking him to ask for the, those things that he lays upon our hearts, that we should pray for these men and for our community, that God's uh, name and his kingdom would be glorified, and that we as a church are able to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Thank you. Our closing hymn is 355, We Are God's People. Let's stand and sing. Notice the words are very apropos for tonight. 355, We Are God's People.
May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. The grace of the Lord be with you. Amen.